Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, August 26, 2010. Ah, yeah, another barn burner. Same old, same old. Heresy season. Full swing early this year. <laughs> yeah. It's just, wow. <laughs> I, even I am floored. And I've been doing this for a while. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Opinions are a dime a dozen, but truthful opinions, well, we, we that that's a whole different thing. Yeah, We're not hearing a lot of truthful talk about God anymore, people seem to think that yeah, just because they've had some kind of an experience or liver shiver that apparently that dictates what truth is. No, 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 no. Your experiences don't mean nothing when it comes to the truth. Truth is true regardless of what your experience tells you. For instance, I don't have any experiences that I can draw on that tell me I'm a saint. <laughs> no. Uh, in fact, in my experience on a day-to-day -day basis, the thing I experience constantly is, well, sinner. And so um, I get this word from outside of me, you know, not, not inside. Because when I look inside, there's blackness and gunkiness and spiders. But when I look outside of me, I hear the gospel. And the gospel says, saint, redeemed, declared righteous, covered in the blood of the lamb. And I go, okay, I'll go with that, <laughs> that because I haven't experienced, I just personally, um, what does uh, being a saint, does that experience feel like? Um, I just don't know. I mean, I struggle against my sin on a daily basis. It, maybe being a saint is just, um, yeah, be like Paul. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I don't want, uh, do want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from? Yeah, anyway. You, no, your experience, that, uh, no, 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 no. It doesn't even get to get weighed. No, we have to go with the objective word of God, and it's what it says is true, regardless of your experiences. Because you know, Patricia Kling, King Train uh, Kling, may, that might be a way of describing her. Patricia Kling, bizarre. Uh, anyway, um, Patricia King. I mean, she has an angel named Swift. She has talked to the international banker. No, that was uh, that was Todd Bentley. He talked to the international banker angel. She's experienced. She's gone up to heaven and actually gone in God's wine cellar and. 
Well, had a little bit too much to drink while she was there. Uh, All of these, she claims, are her religious experience. I mean, Joshua Mills is able to, you know, spiritually travel to China, you know, without ever leaving his home. I mean, that's what he claims his experiences are. And, um, no, your experience don't, don't, no, it, it, nope, it does not factor into what is true and what's not true. Uh, In fact, you may be truly experiencing something. But that experience it doesn't have its uh, source, its wellspring, uh, with the with the one true God, the blessed Holy Trinity, unless the doctrine that comes with it comports with His Word, points you to Christ and Him crucified for your sins. And the funny thing is, is that when you're pointed to Christ, His cross, His shed blood for you, the forgiveness of sins. Your need for it, your sinfulness and your wretchedness, all that other stuff just falls away like chaff because nothing compares with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not international banker angels or religious liver shivers or experiences or anything of the sort. Nothing compares to Christ. Nothing. Now that I've got that out my, off my chest, well, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, number one, um, I want to do a little bit of email. Yeah, I, I got, to, I have a, another email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, and, and his um, his emails, just for lack of a better way of putting it, are just ridiculously brilliant. And um, when I read a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley email. It makes me look brilliant, too, because his brilliantness apparently rubs off on me because I was smart enough to read his email. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds stupid when I say it that way, doesn't it? <laughs> there may be more truth in that statement than we know. Anyway, <laughs> so we're going to be, uh, uh, I got another Pastor Charmley email, and uh, he's uh, chiming in today about um the claim that uh, Wesley uh, received a uh, visitation from God and and God told him he was all about entertainment. Uh, Pastor Charmley has a few words he'd like to say about that. So we'll be listening to Pastor Charmley. We have another installment uh, of uh, Theater of the Word, Inc. Uh, they have a video um, entitled Religion Matters, Meet Stanford Nutting. And uh, and so we're going to be listening to this parody piece where uh, Stanford Nutting, in case you haven't figured it out from uh, the previous installment we've heard, is kind of like your postmodern '70s hippie who's become an adjunct professor, and he he you know, he it's this this guy's a theology school washout is what it basically <laughs> comes down to, and so he says the nuttiest things. But the funny thing is, is that right after we hear from Stanford Nutting again. Uh, I've got a uh, a recent piece written by um, George Ellerick of the Huffington Post uh, claiming that belief is a paradise, a parasite and what Alice Old Yeller and Broken Lights can teach us about dogma. And so we're going to listen to just I'm gonna read a little bit of this piece and just ask these simple question. Um, let's see here. A uh, story we didn't get to yesterday. African gler- clergy told to re-evangelize ailing Anglican church. Yeah, we got to talk about this. And let's see here. Uh, a wild card uh, uh, one that we could talk about today or on Monday. Uh, Florida megachurch ends age-segregated worship. Now, <laughs> yeah, don't tell this to Rick Warren. Yeah, they they, they might think he's nuts. But, um, yeah, this is a story about uh, uh, Pastor Tulian. Um, 
I cannot pronounce his last name. I'm going to mess this up. So I'll pronounce it the Rosebrorian mangled way. And uh, you can all send me emails and let me know I was wrong. I just, but I knew I was wrong. <laughs> he, uh, Pastor Tulian uh, Tikovigian. I best stab at that was my best stab at it. Anyway, uh, he, he's the Coral. He's the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Uh, uh, he he's uh, taking the pulpit there. Called to uh, be the pastor there after the death of D. James Kennedy. And apparently, he's ended age segregated worship. That is a uh, a wild card. We may not get to that one today. Um, and then I want to talk to you about Nestorianism. Are you thinking Nestorianism? That sounds like it's something regarding the ancient church. Oh, yes, it most certainly is. Now, uh, remember I've been telling you that Biologos, uh, no bueno, Biologos, those folks there are basically trying to figure out how to get water and oil to mix together. And um, that's that falls into the category of fruitless endeavor. They're trying to syncretize um, evolution, uh, a Darwinian evolutionary theory, which is quack science in reality. It really is, and uh, and Christianity. And so, what do they have to do in order to get the two to mix? Well, you got to get rid of, uh, you got to get rid of those thorny passages in Scripture that would, well, make your syncretism not work. Yeah, I remember Jesus, you know, talking about if you were to, you know, rob a house that you've had to first tie up the strong man. Well, in this particular case, the strong man is Jesus. And so what Biologos is trying to do is tie Jesus up and, and hog tie him so that they, they can plunder his house and bring in objects that don't belong in his house, namely our Darwinian evolutionary theory. Um, and so, um, they're fully aware that uh Jesus in according to the eyewitness testimony uh, believed and taught that Adam and Eve was a historical person that flood the flood of Noah was literal Cain and Abel literal Jesus well he taught all those things as literal history and not only him but so did his uh, disciples and the apost- the apostles did too and so well that's kind of a problem cuz if your goal is to mesh together Darwinian evolutionary theory and um, Christianity, those passages just keep getting in the way. I mean, uh, so they've got to find a way to get rid of those passages. Well, they've come up with a clever one indeed. And uh, they even brought in big gun N.T. Wright to help them with this... um, with this way of getting around the, the fact that Jesus believed that uh, Adam and Eve and Noah and Cain and Abel and, well, the, you know, basically Genesis is literal history. they got to get around. they got to find a way to hogtie Jesus so they can plunder his house. And so they've brought in N.T. Wright to help him with this. And uh, what they end up doing is committing what's called the Nestorian heresy. It's a Christological heresy from the early church. And, um, and I'll explain it in in due time but we're going to get to this one today because i ended up crossing swords with scott mcknight over at uh, his blog at uh, beliefnet.com that virtual smorgasbord of um, pluralism over there so we're going to be talking about that today uh let's see here uh another one this is a wild card that we may not get to today uh jim wallace versus the truth did you all know that um atheist um Marxist George Soros has um, helped fund uh, Jim Wallace's organization, Sojourners. Uh, did you, did, were you all aware of that? 
I was reading World Magazine and went, huh? <laughs> what? Yes, the uh, August 18th, uh, 2010 Web Extra at um, World Magazine, worldmag.com. If you, if you, I, I don't know if we're going to get to this today, but uh, if you want to read it and even if we don't get to it, go to worldmag.com and in their search box, uh, type in Jim Wallace versus the truth and uh, – uh, George, I kid you not. George Soros apparently has um, funded to the tune of two hundred thousand dollars. Help fund uh, sojourners. It just, um, wow. What does that mean? Anyway, so we may not get to that one today. And then our sermon review today uh, comes to us via the Orchard in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, Pastor. Scott Hodge, uh, boy, it, this is uh, just depressingly hard to listen to. Sad. Uh, this is a sermon entitled "Mirrors for uh, for You or for Me," and um, it, it, boy, folks, you know Scott Hodge. There, he's not teaching the biblical gospel, and uh, and uh, he's come up with something completely new. Actually, the it's very clear to me that he's come under the influence of Brian McLaren and Jonathan Brink of the Emergent Church. But uh, more on that in hour number two when we get to the sermon review. Uh, it's a it's a gospel that he preaches that sounds gracious enough. It sounds it sounds like grace, but it isn't. It it actually turns God into a monster. It's just some bad stuff. So. That's what's on deck for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So make yourself comfortable. We're going to uh, dive into the program proper. If you'd like to kick up your feet, fuzzy bunny slippers are in order. Somebody, I, I've been cleaning out my email box, and somebody sent me a link to uh, some uh, some alternate uh, fuzzy bunny slippers that I should make available on the uh, Fighting for the Faith website shortly. At least a link to it if you'd like to uh, purchase them. Uh, they look they they look like the um, well they it looks like Monty Python uh, paraphernalia, and so it's the um, bunnies uh, the bunny with the sharp pointy teeth, uh, fuzzy bunny slippers, which of course, um, I I'm putting on my Christmas list. <laughs> yeah, I, I might even in the future be doing my program wearing such uh, such things. So. But that just, again, lets you know that uh, I may be one taco short of a combo plate, but many of you already figured that already. So it's not like that's a secret. All right, let's uh, dive into the program proper. We got some email today from across the pond, the pond known as the Atlantic Ocean. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent. Writing about John Wesley. By the way, pa Pastor Charmley... Yeah, he he knows a lot. He he's he know he's forgotten more about Wesley than I've ever known. Yeah, just kind of let you know that. Now let me set this up. If you remember the uh, recently, I played a sermon where somebody claimed that John well, it was a, it was actually a soundbite. Somebody was claiming that uh, John Wesley had had a well a glory impartation or something to that effect. On the "What is Jesus like?" piece was was, and apparently the guy said that uh, God appeared to uh, Jonathan Wesley and um, and told him that he that he's about entertainment or something. Anyway, Pastor Charmley has the details. The email reads, uh, "Dear Chris, on the subject of what is Jesus like, um, that that piece is one of the few non-Methodists who has taken the time to read the whole of John Wesley's works in the old edition as well as the journal." 
I, I find the claim that John Wesley had a, quote, visitation from God during which God told him, I'm an entertainer and you are my entertainment, uh, hard to believe. Y- you mean you didn't find that quote in when you read everything that John Wesley has ever written? <clears throat> First of all, I, I've never read anything like that. Second, Wesley did not believe in entertaining people. I would agree. Um, as, as said, I have read his complete works and at no point does he aim to entertain his sermons to take on, uh, to take one example are plain to the point of baldness in editing his hymnal. He, (laughs) he did omit all hymns that he felt addressed our Lord in too familiar of a manner, which meant that Yesu lover of my soul was omitted. Are you serious? So in, in John Wesley's hymnal, he took out the, um, the hymn, uh, Yesu, Lover of My Soul, because, well, that made Jesus too familiar. Hmm, that's interesting to note. I wonder what uh, John Wesley would think of today's um, 7-Eleven songs that turn Jesus into our bearded girlfriend. This is the end, <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> I had something that must have gotten caught in my throat. Wesley traveled at least 250,000 miles during his life, mostly on horseback. He was physically attacked many times by his opponents. He was, in fact, an incredibly serious man, whatever his faults. The writer Alexander Witt says of his preaching, there was little or nothing that could be called popular, either in the matter or in the manner of Wesley's preaching. There was little or no imaginative power in his preaching. There was little or no dramatic power. There was little or no power of illustrations. Yeah, this is from Witt's uh, book, The Thirteen Appreciations. Uh, His style would be acceptable to confessional Lutheranism. Hey, watch it there, Pastor Charlie. His style may be, but we might take umbrage with him regarding his uh, use of law and gospel when it comes to the handling of the word. Anyway, let's continue. He says, and what did those sermon contains? Well, the titles show us, quote, salvation by faith, quote, justification by faith, quote, the repentance of believers, quote, the Lord our righteousness, quote, Satan's devices, quote, original sin, quote, on the Trinity, quote, God's love to fallen man, quote, on the fall of man, quote, on the divine providence of hell, on omnipresence of God, on the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, those were all the titles of his sermons. You mean he didn't have uh, a sermon entitled My Lame Sex Life? That just sounds wrong when you say it that way, especially in light of Luther or Wesley or Calvin. Yeah, none of those guys would have bought into any of the silliness going on today. Anyways, he says, uh, none of these are exciting titles or likely to attract large crowds. They are, in fact, doctrinal sermons that are very well constructed, and most importantly, they were biblical. Other sermons of Wesley include On Corrupting the Word of God, a sermon that many modern preachers need to read and most pertinent to the question at hand, the nature of enthusiasm, enthusiasm, meaning fanaticism. That's right. I wonder if I might, I wonder if those are available online somewhere. They may be worth passing along, although I, I'm not a big fan of Wesley, especially as an ex-Nazarene. Anyway, so Wesley preached on the subject of enthusiasm. Then we have Wesley's own opinion of such men. What then does Wesley say of those who believe they have, quote, visitations from God? Quote, it is undoubtedly a disorder of the mind, and such a disorder as greatly hinders the exercise of reason. Nay, sometimes it wholly sets it aside. It not only dims but shuts the eyes of understanding. It may therefore well be accounted as a species of madness. <laughs> 
<clears throat> Great quote, by the way. Yeah, That's actually, wow. So I, I, I'm taking it then, Pastor Termley, that based upon your email that um, John Wesley probably would not have hung out with Patricia King, Todd Bentley, or the, the mad men who was talking about what Jesus is like. Yeah, because apparently they suffer from a form or a species of madness. He goes on, uh, Wesley continues, quote, Every enthusiast then is properly a madman. It seems that he had he had rather a dim view of enthusiasts. I recommend reading the whole of this sermon to see what Wesley thought of those who believe that they have received direct revelation from God. I find myself in agreement with Wesley concerning uh, this man's foolish babblings. The thing, the man is raving. Anyway, anyone who has read Wesley finds this man's claims to be utter nonsense. This is like Benny Hinn claiming that he came across a certain teaching read by Martin Luther. It is a deep, dishonest tactic, falsely claiming another man's authority for one's own heretical nonsense. In every case, the choice is decidedly infelicitous, as both men were implacably opposed to enthusiasm and said so loudly. Wesley was one of the most serious and sober-minded men of his age, and the very idea he thought of religion as entertainment is utterly absurd. Great. Great points, Pastor Charmley. Again, you do us a fantastic service uh, through your fact-checking here at Fighting for the Faith. Just amazing stuff. All right, moving along, talking about <clears throat> madness. Um, here is uh, the next installment of the uh, the theological travails of um, Stanford Nutting, adjunct professor. Uh, well, I mean, he's an adjunct teacher at uh, one of the local community colleges, uh, he appeared on the uh, program entitled Religion Matters. Here is uh, Stanford Nutting. <laughs> Mr. Stanford Nutting, you're a teacher at a local university, right? Well, I'm an adjunct. I'm an adjunct at the Community College uh, Continuing Education Division. What do you teach? Fundamentals of faith. What are the fundamentals of faith? Well, three things. Number one, tolerance. Number two... Hugs. And number three, whatever. <laughs> I am so sorry for stopping that. <sighs> <I've, clears throat> he's apparently, a, um, he attends church at an emergent uh, co cohort. What church is this? Whatever. Church of the whatever? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right, whatever. Does your church have any rules or ethical imperatives? Uh, could you repeat the question and, and rephrase it just a little? Does your church have anything like the Ten Commandments set in stone? No. Um, the, our commandments are not written in stone. They're written in jello. The kind of jello that hasn't set yet, that's still kind of, you know, flowy and liquidy. That's, that's the way we've written our commandments at our church. Why is that? Well... Human nature is changing. It's always flowing. It's flowing and adapting. And we try to match the flow. We try to get with the flow. That's the main reason. And? And I like Jello. How does that fit into the typical role of religion? What about the fact that uh, uh, religion typically teaches us how to behave? Um, uh, it tells us what we should and should not do. <laughs> There's that word again, should, huh? Let me tell you a little story. Let me tell you a little something. 
When I was in seminary back in the 70s, we learned to shudder it should. Ought is not a good word. Oughties are naughties, you see. Thou shalt not say thou shalt not. Thou shalt not say thou shalt not? That's right. That's our only commandment. Thou shalt not say thou shalt not. But surely, Stanford, when you say thou shalt not say thou shalt not, you are saying thou shalt not. Well, that's why we, we write them in, in jello, because it gives us a little wiggle. A little, <laughs> little wiggle, no, see? But <laughs> Okay, these guys, they, they're killing me. They are absolutely killing me. You know, the reason why it's fun is because this is what we run into. Over and again, the thing I constantly point out, the fact is, is that these emergent types, they're, they, they're putting stuff out that's completely self-contradictory, self-defeating propositions. I had a, a high school gal at the church that, uh, that I'm a member of, and uh, I did a lecture on... Uh, the emergent church, and uh, and she came up, and we ended up having a conversation. I let her borrow one of my books on the emergent church, and she gave it back to me the other day. And uh, she asked a question. She says, you know, I run into this at, at, at my high school. And she says, what do I say to somebody that says there's no truth? And, you know, I, I didn't fault her for not thinking it through, but uh, I, I pointed her to the fact. I said, okay, when somebody says something like that, that there is no truth, it's a self-defeating proposition. You have to immediately turn around and say, so the only truth is that there is no absolute truth. So that's the only one absolute truth. These guys did it beautifully. We say thou shalt not say thou shalt not. Well, they're saying thou shalt not. It's it's the same thing. And uh, talking about Stanford nutting, um, um, <laughs> George Ellerick of the Huffington Post on his uh, Patheos blog uh, of October 16th of this year, writes, uh, the headline reads, Belief is a Parasite, What Alice Old Yeller and Broken Lights Can Teach Us About Dogma. Don't worry, I won't read the whole thing. George Ellerick opines from the, uh, he, apparently he's uh, the resident uh, <laughs> Stanford nutting scholar there for the Huffington Post. He says, the reason why dogma can't be deemed as belief is because belief is structureless. Right. Belief isn't dependent upon a system. In fact, belief is the direct betrayal of fidelity. Sometimes the system is what some refer to as faithfulness. If we remain faith, if we remain true to a system of belief, then we are participating in faith. But once we deem the structure fallible, then we are deemed as outsiders. This structured belief doesn't just lie within the construct of religion, but in any topic. We all believe in things, and in each person, each thing they believe in is precious, as it should be. But if we sacrifice our belief to systematic altars, then we end up with a system that is not a belief. We end up with the illusion of belief. Right. In a great example of this scene in Tim Burton's cinematic rendering of Carol's Alice in Wonderland, Alice enters into Wonderland and can't remember ever being there. Her disbelief causes others to disbelieve. She, be <laughs> she begins dismantling the system that others have expected of her. Once she fails everyone, including herself, then she then is reminded of who she once was. She rekindles her muchness 
and it is the darkest moment of her disbelief that she comes to see the truth. Truth is discovered not when we have the lights on, but is found when all the lights are switched off. So basically, belief is bad. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. In fact, he recently tweeted, I kid you not, he said that um, uh, to deny the creeds is to believe the creeds. It, 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 this is just nonsense. And so the simple answer to um, George Ellerick, the uh, resident uh, Stanford Nutting scholar there at the Huffington Post, is to basically ask him if he believes his beliefs about belief. If he believes his beliefs about belief, then, well, then the whole thing just collapses on itself and is dumb as saying that we, thou shalt not say, thou shalt not. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Source made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! 
for to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer. Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry. Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Self-defeating propositions that are paradoxical are not spiritual. They're just irrational. All right. This is the point where <clears throat> this is the money plea, folks. Why are you changing things up? Well, the reason I'm changing things up uh, during the money plea section is because when you hear the same thing, you just don't hear it. And so I'm trying something a little bit different so you Hear it. That's right. Hear, hear me. Uh, listen, <clears throat> I know that there are a lot of listeners out there, new listeners even, who have, uh, who have, re- well, basically, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, have become addicted to this program. Now, I'm not trying to make fighting for the faith into some kind of uh, religious crack or anything like that. Uh, but that being the case, <clears throat> keep this in mind. I'm here to serve you. When I say. <clears throat> I am your servant in Jesus Christ. I well, I literally mean that. I'm here to serve you every day, and uh, and to take the study and the work that I've done uh, in biblical scholarship and uh, apologetics and bring it to you in a way that helps build your faith, points you to Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, and to uh, give you answers uh, to uh, the 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 everyday challenges that are out there in the religious marketplace of ideas. Because uh, even even the craziest people that we have on the program. You can probably uh, you probably have some living examples of people who believe like they do in your life, and so we're trying to give you in an informative and somewhat whimsical and um, it, well, not entertaining, but whimsical, fun way to uh, be able to answer some of these very serious challenges that we face here. That being said, it takes a long time to pro- produce this program and to do the uh, the research and work that uh, goes into preparing. Every edition of Fighting for the Faith. That being said, I work from the assumption that this is a partnership. This is literally, it's a partnership. Here's how it works I serve you, and you grow, and you find it valuable, valuable enough to share some of the treasure that God has helped you earn in your life through your vocation so that I can continue doing what I do. That's how this works. So if you are a listener to this program and you are growing as a result of it and you don't support us financially, well, this this is kind of a one-way relationship. It's, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> I would, I, I'm calling for some equality in our relationship. And so if you do not support us financially, I'm asking that you would do so. Yeah, that's right. 
And uh, I've we've come up with a couple of really easy ways for you to do this. Okay, uh, you go to our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. I talk about the friendly yellow buttons. By the way, the friendly yellow portion of it, I think I got that from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Somebody asked me about that in an email recently. Anyway, uh, two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And the idea here is is that it, it, uh, if you would like to support us by joining our crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. It's not a lot of money, but it means a lot to us because what happens is there's power in numbers. And so $6.95 every month, and that helps make it so that uh, we're, we can budget properly our expenses and uh, and meet our expenses. Of course, you know, the summer months, they, they, they tend to run a little thin. So anyway... Um, $6.95 every month, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, or just click on the donate button, and you can securely make a uh, one-time contribution to our ongoing work here. Ta-da! There it is. So I was hoping that if I did it a little bit different that you'd hear it because, you know, it's really easy just to, you know, fast forward. You get what I'm saying. All right, looking at my time here. Okay, so talking about the folks over there at Biologos. Okay, Scott McKnight, who kind of hangs on the outer rim and of the emergent movement, and we recently heard him interviewing um, uh, Brian McLaren regarding being a heretic. Uh, Scott McKnight, he has a uh, blog called The Jesus Creed, and it, it, this is uh, today's installment. Uh, the name of it is What Did Jesus Know? Now, this is a very sneaky thing that's going on here, because here's the reason why. It's because the, the video that's posted on his blog is from Biologos. Biologos has made, has, is not hiding the fact that they're trying to syncretize Darwinian evolutionary theory and biblical Christianity. They're basically trying to figure out the secret to mixing oil with water. And the solution that they've come up with is to hogtie Jesus and to undercut what Jesus has said and taught and and basically have a view of Scripture that's less than Jesus's view. And in order to do that, they have to come up with some clever ways to get rid of those thorny passages where Jesus keeps getting in the way. Let me give you an example. Okay, Scott McKnight writes on his blog, he says, This post has a great deal to do with the discussion of the relationship between science and faith. While many would concede that Genesis 1 through 11 could be viewed as truth told in a form of story or parable or poetry, uh, the way the text is used in the New Testament appears to preclude this option precisely. Okay, that's right, because what does Paul say? You know, Paul, you know, you know, through the one man, Adam, the all were made sinners. So by Christ, the one man, they all are made righteous. Got it? Okay, Paul uses Adam literally. Jesus, taught in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 19, says that in the beginning, God created the male and female. He didn't say God, well, symbolically made them or... Uh, mythology, the mythology poem in Genesis says, you know, we want to have to maintain a high view of marriage. No, 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 no. Jesus said God created them male and female. And he says the blood of righteous Abel. He talks about the blood of righteous Abel all the way down to uh, the prophet, uh, you know, what is it, Barakiah? Uh, I forget, Zechariah? I'm forgetting at this point. The son of Barakiah, who was killed between the, you know, anyway, you got what I'm saying. Jesus talks about the uh, Genesis stories as if they're literal history, including 
the the Noatic flood and and other things. Okay, so the folks at Biologas have got to get around that, and this was one of the major points that was brought up in uh, Albert Muller's lecture. Uh, about how old does the earth look? Well, the folks at Biologos, uh, well, they're not sitting on their laurels. Uh, this week, uh, they had, you know, they had one of their VPs write a hit piece against Al Mohler and published in the Huffington Post. And, uh, we covered that one and showed that, well, <clears throat> the claim that Albert Mohler doesn't care about the truth and that he was lying in his lecture falls flat when you examine the real facts. Yeah, so it, the, but never worry. The folks at Biologos, they're going to find a way to hogtie Jesus and get rid of those thorny passages where both he and his apostles uh, use the book of Genesis and the people in them as literal history. <clears throat> so um, anyway, uh, McKnight continues. He says, um, if Jesus and Paul viewed Genesis 1 through 11 as history, shouldn't we also? This general idea has come up in the comments following many different posts. Most recent, the post on the Tremper Longman uh, video uh, regarding the historical Adam. Yep, that was exactly my point. We brought that up here. He says, I don't think that the way Jesus refers to Genesis 1 through 2, see my instance for Matthew 9, 19, 4 through 6, implies historicity at all. Yeah, Scott McKnight's uh, theology is compromised. Uh, the references to God-ordained marriage. No, Jesus said God created them male and female. Read the text. He says God created them male and female. Let me pull up the passage in question, I, mean, you know, I might as well just you know take a look at it. Uh, from the uh, English uh, Standard Version, which I lovingly refer to as the English Sanctified, we'll put this in context here, take a look at Matthew chapter 19. Now, uh, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I think it is absolutely duplicitous of any Christian theologian to claim that when Jesus said God created the male and female, that that doesn't imply historicity at all, that instead that it's just somehow referencing the uh, the, the the God's ordination and uh, high view of marriage. God's high view of marriage is not divorced. Notice the pun. God's high view of marriage cannot be divorced from the two people whom God created who were our first parents and were the first two to be married. To do so is to basically create a low view of marriage. Yeah, this is just crazy. So then McKnight says, well, the reference to Noah may or may not imply that Jesus was thinking of a literal historical person. Really? Really? Jesus? No, Jesus references Noah as if he's literal history. Let's take a look at that passage. Matthew 24. Hang on a second here. Matthew 24. Yep, it's mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. Four, verse 37, but I will read a, put a little context in it. 
Okay, Matthew 24, verse 33, I begin. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near, talking about the return of Christ, at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of the Father, uh, but nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. No, Jesus actually teaches the Noahic flood as literal history and ties his second coming to it. And the text itself, the person who would deny that he's engaging in literal history here, the proof is on them to prove that he's not. What in the text would make you think that it could possibly be that Jesus was speaking poetically or mythologically about the flood of Noah? Because in this in Jesus' description of the flood of Noah, he adds more information than what's given in the book of Genesis. He gives information that's not recorded there. And <clears throat> let's see if I can make sense of this. Okay, so Noah's flood, that didn't really happen. That was just a symbolic mytho- mythological thing, a cautionary tale to keep you from beating up on your neighbor. So let me read this. So as we're in the day in the mythological days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man, literally. For as in those mythological days before the mythological flood, they were mythologically eating and mythologically drinking and mythologically marrying and mythologically giving in marriage until the mythological day when Noah entered the mythological ark. And they were unaware until the flood mythologically came and mythologically swept them all away. Uh, so will be the coming of the son of man. No, it doesn't make any sense as soon as you put it into that kind of a context. So, no, Jesus did believe in a literal flood. The text itself makes it clear that that's the case. And it's the proof is on those who would deny it to prove that that, that Jesus wasn't speaking literally. <clears throat> anyway, I still haven't even gotten to the um, the video yet. So, anyway, the Biologos people <clears throat> have now come up with a video where they've enlisted the help of N.T. Wright to... Find a way to get rid of these passages because oh, they just they can't stand the way they are. They can't stand the fact that Jesus and his apostles believed and taught in a literal Genesis, in a literal Adam and Eve, a literal Cain and Abel, a literal no. It's it just it, they can't syncretize Christianity with Darwinian evolution as long as those passages are there in their way. So they've come up with a creative way to sweep them aside. <clears throat> Let me play for you N.T. Wright. Now, by the way, uh, N.T. Wright, I think he's being used. I don't think he is in the story. But let's, uh, you're saying, what? Uh, what? I'll get to it. Hang on. Here, here's N.T. Wright. Hi, I'm Dr. Peter Enns. I'm Senior Fellow in Biblical Studies at the Biologos Foundation. And we're here today with uh, the Reverend Dr. Tom Wright. And we have a chance to ask some questions, some of which we've gotten uh, via Twitter and emails, uh, and also about a lot of topics such as his recent book, After You Believe, 
and uh, science and faith issues. So uh, welcome, Tom. Thank you. Uh, good, good to, to see you, you again. Yeah. Well, here's a first question we have for you. Um, what do you think is the biggest misunderstanding that Western 21st century evangelical Christians have about Jesus? Um, and how does this misunderstanding stunt our faith and our witness? It's hard to quantify different levels of misunderstanding, but one thing I meet constantly... Okay, listen to... The, the, how does these misunderstandings about Jesus stunt our faith and our witness? That is just... Uh, let me translate for you. I speak liberal. <clears throat> Translation. Listen. Uh, Christians apparently misunderstand Jesus and his this idea that he literally believed in the literal Genesis, and, and we can't really be taken seriously by people in the academy, in science, and, and Darwinian evolutionists if we believe in a literal six-day creation. Uh, so is it possible that people misunderstand Jesus? Uh, because this is stunting our witness. We... Uh, uh, we are listen people are looking down on us they're calling us stupid cuz we don't believe cuz cuz christians don't believe in darwinian evolution that's stunting our witness it's creating a roadblock and we want them to believe in jesus but we don't want them but they don't want to believe in jesus if he if jesus doesn't believe in evolution that's the translation and have done for many years, is the idea that because Jesus was divine, which sort of comes with the turf of who we are, we believe this stuff about Jesus being divine, therefore he couldn't have had any questions in his mind, he couldn't have struggled with vocation, he couldn't actually have meant it when he said, maybe there's another way in Gethsemane. And I, I think one of the key things to remember is that in the great formulations of faith in the early church, um, the humanity of Jesus is every bit as important as, as his divinity. And that's not just a clever balance act. That's actually a very profound insight on the part of the earliest Christians, that whatever you mean by divinity, you have to make sure it doesn't, as it were, trump his humanity. Because, of course, the divinity of Jesus is not some abstract divinity. It's the divinity of Israel's God, who is the God who brings in his kingdom and does so with compassion and love and all that. And the humanity of Jesus is the humanity of Israel's representative. And Israel is the people who goes through all this suffering and all this tribulation and somehow God vindicates them. And these two come rushing together in Jesus. And what I see in so much evangelical um, thinking still is a kind of nervousness about mm -hmm. admitting that any of that might really be the case. And that prohibits one from actually engaging with what the Gospels are all about. Okay, now <clears throat> let me uh, translate what's going on here. How is it now? N.T. Wright is not an historian. There's no way in Hades he's an historian. He's, he's a lot of things, but he's not an historian. But what is happening here is the BioLogos team is laying a foundation that basically they're creating an apologetic that they can get rid of these passages where Jesus believes in a literal Adam and Eve, a literal Cain and Abel, a literal Noah, and they can, they're trying to find a way to get rid of that. And here's how the argument runs. The argument runs like this. Well, keep in mind that Jesus was both God and man. Mm. So in his humanity, Jesus didn't know any better. You see, Jesus was a product of his time from a human point of view. And so as, a, as a product of his time from a human point of view, well, Jesus at that time didn't have access to Darwinian evolutionary science that we have access to today. And so... It's really not his fault that he believed in a literal 
Adam and Eve, that he believed in a real Noah, that he believed in a real flood and a real Cain and Abel. It's completely understandable that Jesus would would mistakenly believe those things because, well, he he, he was human too, and and so it, his humanity he just didn't know any better. So therefore, Jesus was mistaken, but it wasn't it wasn't intentional. You know, it was just because in the incarnation he just didn't have access to all of the science that we have access to today. And of course, if Jesus were alive today then Jesus would be, well, he would be with us in the Biologos Foundation and teaching a way to syncretize Darwinian evolutionary theory and, um, and Christianity. Because, it's, see, his humanity would have access to all of the science that we have access to, and he would be a part of the academy and would tell Christians to, uh, you know, to, to believe in evolution because evolution has to be true because uh, the academy says so, right? That's what's going on here. Now, Here's the problem. This is this engages in. Uh, in order for this to be true, you have to believe what's called the Nestorian heresy. And the idea behind the Nestorian heresy is that, well, y- you basically divide Jesus into his God part, into his man part. And what happens is, is that they're kind of both inside of Jesus. In a real way, you can say there's two Jesuses. You've got the human Jesus and you've got these, the divine Jesus. And so the human Jesus, well, he's, he makes mistakes, and, and, the, and the divine Jesus, well, he doesn't. Here's the problem, okay? That's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that there is only one Christ, that Jesus is one, that he's not two. So you can't, you, you got to understand that Jesus, just like when we talk about our, ourselves uh, as human beings, we have our bodies and we have our souls. But the thing is, is that y- there's not two of you. There's only one of you. You are a combination. You are a spiritual flesh being. And to tear the two apart is to kill you. Okay, there's not two of you. There's only one of you. Same with Jesus. His divine nature and his human nature are basically united in the incarnation so that there's not two Jesuses but one. And... So what they're basically trying to do is use the Nestorian heresy to basically say, well, Jesus in his humanity didn't know any better, and we didn't want his, his divinity to trump his humanity because then that would break some kind of rule. And therefore, we can get rid of those passages that, that say that, well, that teach where Jesus believed in the a literal um, Genesis. Yeah, this is just absolutely satanic. That's the only way I can describe it. This is duplicitous and false. And it falls on its face on two points. Number one, in order to believe that the Nestorian heresy has to be true, and it's not. And second, Jesus himself makes it clear that he receives his revelation from the Father. Okay? Jesus receives his revelation from the Father. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 8, verse 38 is the key verse, but I want to put a little bit of context on it, and there's more to this. I'm going to get to it. In John chapter 8, we read, uh, starting at verse 34, Jesus is speaking. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are uh, our offspring of Abraham, Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. 
I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not ha- and 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 you do what you have heard from your father. Let me read that again. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus, Jesus, do you think he was just making stuff up? No, Jesus himself reveals in his in his own words, in his own testimony, that he spoke of those things that that he was were given to him by God the Father. So even though in Christ we have a divine human being, a, a God man, okay. Even though in Christ we're talking about a unique in, individual, he is a God incarnate, okay? And, yeah, he has a divine nature and a human nature. And you've got to talk about the communication of the attributes and how those things uh, you know, work together, not separately, but together. Uh, in the communication of the attributes, what we, the other thing is, is that Jesus himself makes it clear that when he's speaking the word of God, he's not speaking on his own, but that he's revealing things that were revealed to him by the Father. So his message itself is of divine origin. Let me give you another passage. John chapter 17. This is, uh, I think, from uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. We read, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They have guarded it. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus himself, in his high priestly prayer, makes it clear that the message that he gave his disciples has its origin in the Father, the words that the Father gave him. There's no way around it. These folks at Biologos are trying to find, basically use sophistry, sophistry, yeah, just and plain old deceit, any way, anything they can to overturn Jesus's words. But to do so, they have to engage. They have to employ the Nestorian heresy, and somehow, oh, his human nature. Well, just didn't know any better. Well, Nestorian heresy or not, Jesus himself makes it clear that the message that he preached, that his words were given to him by the Father. Yeah, and so no, so no way around it. Whether Jesus had access to evolutionary theory or not is not the point. He is the God-man, and the message that he preached and the words that he gave were, have their origin in God the Father. No way around it. These folks at Biologos, they are up to no good. No good at all. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. 
Sissy frenzy turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Put your thinking caps on. Sometimes the most deceptive gospels out there are the ones that sound the most loving to, well, the unregenerate, uh, biblically illiterate ear. What you're going to hear today is something that sounds so close to the biblical gospel, you might actually be convinced that it's the real thing. Let's uh, start up the music here.
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Orchard in Aurora, Illinois. Pastor Scott Hodge presiding. Now, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm saddened by what I hear in this sermon, and I'll tell you why. Because I've watched Scott Hodge's theology drift further and further into emergent apostasy. Now, let me tell you what he's being influenced by in this sermon. You're going to hear something that sounds very gospely. Sounds almost like grace and faith and forgiveness. It's, it's so close. But in reality, what's ticking under the hood here is... Um, theology coming from both Brian McLaren and somebody you may not even be familiar with in the Emergent Church, a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Brink. He has a new book out called The God Imagination. And it's clear to me, as somebody who is very familiar with Jonathan Brink's uh, thinking, I've had a fine, wonderful conversation with uh, Jonathan Brink. In fact, over a burrito, I think. Anyway, I forget what we were eating when we were talking, but um, I'm very familiar with uh, his theology. Read his book. What you're going to hear is basically a sermon in a seeker-driven church that's been heavily influenced by the thinking of the emergent church movement. Don't tell me emergent is dead. Scott Hodge, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the near future Doug Paget. Uh, approaches him and says, hey, would you be willing to write a book and we'll publish it under the Emergent Village Imprimatur? Yeah, I think that's coming. The name of the sermon, by the way, is entitled Mirrors. Yeah, Mirrors for Me. It is the most recent sermon preached by Scott Hodge, so... Without any further ado, let's kill the music here, and uh, here is Scott Hodge from the Orchard in Aurora, Illinois. Keep in mind, Scott is a is very well known among the leadership of the uh, purpose driven, seeker driven gang. So, what he does has um, has some street creds. It has influence. Here we go. Series this weekend called Mirrors, and uh, my guess is is probably most of us here. And maybe some of you who didn't do this this morning, but, but probably most of us here looked into a mirror at some point today. Look to the person next to you right now. Just take a look at them. You could probably tell if they hadn't looked at a mirror because they, they... Okay, anyway. Um, so here's my question, though. Okay, here, here's my question. When you, when you looked in the mirror this morning, what did you see? What did you see when you looked in the mirror, huh? Uh, some, of you, some of you, you saw, you saw some, some gray hairs, and you said, ah, I don't like those gray hairs, right? I don't either. I blame them on my... They really started showing up after my son. Yeah, funny. When I looked in the mirror this morning, I saw an underweight fat guy. Just, it's weird how that happens. Son was born. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, and, and, okay, maybe some of you, you looked in the mirror, you saw um, someone who was out too late the night, night before, right? Eyes a little bloodshot. Uh, others of you, you looked, you looked in the mirror, you saw someone who was, who was uh, may, maybe looked good on the outside... Maybe it doesn't feel so good on the inside. But one thing's for certain. When you look in the mirror, you know what you see? You see reality. And for some of you, that's very unfortunate. <laughs> I'm joking. No, but, but seriously, I mean, think about it, okay? I mean, mirrors don't lie, do they? 
mean, if you look in the mirror and if you don't like what you see in the mirror, don't blame it on the mirror, okay? It's not the mirror's fault, all right? I mean, mirrors don't lie. Mirrors tell the truth. They tell the truth. You know, in, in, in many ways, our lives are surrounded by mirrors. Yeah, not, not, not necessarily these like literal mirrors, but, but our lives are surrounded by mirrors that oftentimes end up defining our lives. Yeah, they define our lives. In fact, um, in the early 1900s, 1902 to be exact, there was a, uh, a man by the name of Charles Cooley. And uh, Charles Cooley came up with this idea called the looking glass self. And the idea of the, the looking glass self is basically that, that, that it's the idea that our identity, okay, our idea of self is almost always the result of how we think other people perceive us. Okay, okay, I mean, for, for example, if you perceive that people think that you are a loser, you will start to think that you are a what? Loser. Right? Or if you, if you think that other people perceive you as being some sort of genius, after a while you, you begin thinking you are a genius, whether they are right or wrong. And, and, and so here's the thing. Whether we realize it or not, you and I, we form our identities. We, we form our identities based on how we think other people view us. That, that could be our family. That could be our friends. That could be our, our parents, our coworkers, our spouses, our peers. Those are the mirrors, and we are surrounded by those mirrors, and they all play a huge role in how, uh, in how we perceive ourselves, how we see ourselves, which is also where the problem comes in. Because here's the thing, okay, unlike the literal mirror that tells us the truth and that shows us the reality of, of what's going on here, unlike these mirrors, okay, these other mirrors that I'm talking about, we're going to talk about throughout the series, almost always do just the opposite of that. And what happens is, is the more we stare into those mirrors, the more we find ourselves carrying all sorts of, of fragile and rapidly changing identities. And, and the more time we spend uh, uh, just constantly in need of, of affirmation and approval from everybody we can get it from in our lives. And as a result, what happens is our lives end up becoming all about trying to please everybody. Okay, now, so here we are in the, uh, the the portion of the sermon where we're pitching the problem. Well, what's the problem? Uh, you may be uh, forming in, uh, forming your identity, uh, what you think about yourself, from bad information. So, so what's the problem? There's a bunch of people out there who um, who are believing lies about themselves, and they they they've bought into misinformation about who they are, and as a result of it, their identity is all wrapped up in it. Now, right off the bat, what's the problem? This is a psychological category. This is not a biblical category. Yeah, this is psychology. This isn't theology, and it's not Christian doctrine. When it comes to properly understanding ourselves, uh, the way Scripture teaches about who we are, it's not about uh, who we are to ourselves. It Scripture really is the story of man's relationship with God. And all of us, by nature, are born with a bad relationship. Not because God is bad, but because we, as a species, have rebelled against God. And so uh, it's not about, Scripture's not about self-identity or 
self-actualization. That's, that's just absolutely misinformed. Scripture tells us about our fractured relationship with God and what God has done in Christ to restore that relationship. Yeah, so we got some problems. So in order to properly understand that relationship, we have to look at what the problem is biblically. What's the problem biblically? Why does man have a fractured relationship with God? Is it because we believe lies about ourselves or because man has rebelled against God? Keep that in mind as we listen to this next segment. Trying to make, you know, trying to make everybody happy or, you know, trying to, to manage our image or whatever it might be at that moment. Our lives end up constantly, uh, you know, finding ourselves fighting these feelings of insecurity and, and, and self-doubt and low self-esteem and self-worth. And, 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 and is, is that what the Bible solves? The, the, the problem of low self-esteem and self-doubt and low self-worth? Is that the problem that the Bible addresses? Again, the, these are not categories of biblical doctrine and biblical sanctification and, and theology. These are categories brought to us by pop psychology. So already, we're, if you start with the wrong problem, you're going to come up with the wrong solution practically every time. You see, the reason, again, this is a case for why Pastors need to get rid of these stupid felt needs sermons. And I, I, I that's exactly what I called it, stupid. And I, I'm not going to back off for it. And the reason why is because we're called to proclaim the oracles of God, which are found in Scripture. We're called to preach the word in season and out of season. This isn't preaching the word at this point. You're beginning in the culture. You're beginning with a pop psychology category. And as a result of it, you're, he's trying to shoehorn the Bible into uh, into a space where it doesn't belong, and what the end result is: twisting the Bible and presenting a solution that the Bible doesn't present, and as a result of it, in a sense, preaching a gospel that is absolutely false. In fact, this one's so seductive because it sounds so kind and loving and gracious. Uh, but again, the most dangerous heresies are the ones that are off by just a few degrees. And believe me, this one's way off. And the reason why it's off is because we didn't begin in Scripture. We began with a pop psychology category. Low self-esteem. You you have a bad self-image. <laughs> Where's my therapist? I need my pinky. Guilt and shame and not being good enough and not being smart enough and, and on down the list. All because we're shaping uh, our identities. Not being good enough, not being smart enough. That's Stuart Smalley. That's not the Bible. That's not Jesus. By looking into the wrong mirrors. By, by looking into mirrors that are distorted. Mirrors that paint really only part of the picture, if any of the picture, at, at that. And I'll tell you what, that is a draining life. Man, if you've ever spent time in your life trying to please all the people around you, that's a draining life. And if you've ever tried to try to keep up some sort of appearance of something you're really not, that is a draining life. I mean, pretending to be someone you're not. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a horrible way to live your life. It reminds me of the story I heard about uh, this, this freshly minted lieutenant who uh, 
who, who badly wanted to impress the very first private who walked into his office. And so one day he's standing in his office, and he hears a private coming down the hall. And the private, right as he's walking in, the, the, the uh, lieutenant grabs the phone, and he pretends that he's on the phone with this general so that, so that he could look like he was really important and somebody, you know, really special. So, so he's on the phone. He grabs the receiver. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You bet. Absolutely. Whatever you need, I will be there. Yes, sir. And he slams the phone down, and he, lo- and he looks over at the private, and he says, what, what do you want, private? And the private says, I'm just here to uh, connect your phone, sir. <laughs> See, it's, it's a lot of work trying to manage all those images we think we have to project. And that's why you're so drained after that first date. Right? I mean, think about it. That's why you're so drained after that job interview or you're so drained. Anytime you have to project Okay, so what's he doing at this point? He's now buttressing the problem. See, we've all, quote, experienced this. And he tells a joke, and then he talks about something, you know, some kind of experience that probably many people have had. You know, the uh, the old first date, you know, want to set a good impression. Because, I mean, how's the commercial tagline go? You never get a second chance to make a first impression. <laughs> it's just... Uh, again, we haven't begun in Scripture. We're beginning with a problem in the culture, a problem in our psychology-drenched culture. Certain image. And see, I'll tell you what, I think that's why there's something in all of us that, that is drawn to transparency. And there's something in all of us that's drawn to, uh, to, to go where we can, ju- we can just be ourselves. Just be who God created us to be. And, and so this series, Mirrors, is going to be a series uh, really about how we can have the courage to stop looking in all the wrong mirrors. And, and how, we, how we can embrace the, uh, I guess you could say, the one mirror, you know, the, the ultimate mirror, which is the mirror that God holds up to our lives. Okay, so now we get a hint of the solution. See, the problem is, is that uh, you believe bad things about yourself, and it's tearing down your self-image, causing you to have low self-esteem and low self-worth. And that's caused by you looking in the wrong mirror or listening to the wrong voices. And the solution then is to look to what God says about you in the Bible. Now, if you handle the scriptures correctly, this is not a solution for building self-esteem. Because what we read in scripture is that we are dead in trespasses and sins by nature. That we have rebelled against God. That there's none righteous. No, not one. I get the feeling we're going to be spending some time in Romans today. So if you look into the mirror of, of the Bible, which will give you a bluntly accurate picture of, um, of your relationship with God and what God thinks about you. Because keep in mind, your standing with God at this point by nature is fractured. You are a sinner who's rebelled against God and uh, dead in trespasses and sins and under the wrath of God. That's what God's word clearly says. And then you hear another word. That's all, those are all words spoken to us in light of God's law. But there is another word. The, the other word is the gospel. Okay, The other word is the gospel, the good news. For those who are in Christ Jesus, who through the means of grace the preaching of God's word, have heard of the sin and heard the good news that Christ died for our sins. And through the powerful, regenerative working of the Holy Spirit, 
have been raised from the dead spiritually, have been baptized into Christ. That's what baptism is. We're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what Scripture says. We're baptized into Christ. We are in Christ. We are forgiven. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And God's love and favor rests on us, not because of our own righteousness, but because of, of, for Christ's sake, because of his righteousness. You see, this is what Scripture teaches us, and it's not of ourselves. It's a gift. So no one might boast and, and, and suffer from inflated self-esteem. Yeah, so, but what you're going to hear in this sermon is grace without the cross. And he's going to basically try to paint a picture that basically says, well, I'll let him tell you. Stay tuned. Here we go. How we can embrace that mirror? We can let go of all the wrong mirrors because I'll tell you what, the mirror that God holds up to us, that's the mirror God wants us to look into for our identity. That's the mirror that he wants us to look in to define who we are and, and what our lives are about so that we can truly, really, so we can truly live and be the people that God created us to be. And yet here's the thing, even looking into God's mirror can be quite a challenge for us especially depending on what your perception of God is. Or or how about this? Maybe this is even a better way of saying it. It can be a real challenge looking into the mirror that God holds up to us, not just because and perhaps how we may view God, but man, when it comes to how we perceive God sees us. You think about that. How, How do you think God sees you? See, here's the thing, okay, our perception of who God is and our perception of how God sees us impacts just about every area of our lives. I mean, I mean, think about this for a second. All right, if I perceive God to be constantly moody and, and angry at me and, and pretty much ready to shazam my butt to hell on a bobsled, okay? It, yeah, okay, no, notice the caricature. He's not describing the God of the Bible. He's des- describing one of the... Uh... Uh, the Greek pantheon of gods, Zeus here, you know, moody, capricious, and wants to shazam his hindquarters into hell on a bobsled. N- notice, again, that's, this is a straw man, okay? And this is, this is a subtle one, but it's, it's there for a reason. He's trying to deconstruct the wrath and justice of God. And so he's mischaracterizing God here. By the way, your sins, you being dead in trespasses and sins, the sins you've committed, the sin, the sin of Adam imputed to you, um, has earned you a bobslide, bob, bob, bobsled trip to hell. It has. That, in fact, God has. If God were just and not loving, He could send all of us to hell on a bobsled. And we couldn't point a bony finger at him and say that he's doing something wrong or unfair or unjust because all of us stand condemned in our sins. So he's already wrongly portraying sin and God's wrath and justice against sin. So watch what he's deconstructing and then listen to what he's constructing. This is going to be a Christless and crossless, most importantly, crossless grace that he describes here. If that is my perception, like he's just waiting for me to screw up, that's going to impact my behavior. 
It's going to affect how I live my life. If I, if I perceive that God is some far-off, distant being who, who, who well, he probably doesn't even know my name, let, let alone care about all these things I'm, I'm asking him to help me with in my life. I mean, if that's how I perceive God, that's going to impact my life. It's going to impact how I pray. It's going to impact how I live my life. On the other hand, if I believe that God loves me unconditionally, and, and that God accepts me just as I am, not as I should be. Did you hear it? God accepts me just as I am. If God accepts me just as I am, then why was Jesus hanging, naked, bleeding, scourged, beaten, broken, and battered with a crown of thorns pressed into his head, what was he doing on the cross? <clears throat> yep, I knew we were going to be in Romans today. Just, just knew it was coming. Um, we need to flip over to the book of Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bible, let's uh, head on over to chapter 5, and I want to read this in context, okay? Now, Right off the bat, I'm going to admit this, that this chapter is taken somewhat out of context, and we need to look at the fuller context, which begins in chapter 1 and goes, you know, and all the way to 4. But from 1 to the middle of chapter 3, we've got this long-running argument that basically destroys everybody's self-esteem and says that none is righteous, no, not one. And no one will be justified or declared righteous before God by the law, for the law condemns all of us. And then in the middle portion of chapter 3, we begin to hear the good news of the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. We hear all of these things in Romans, and part of that was in Ephesians too. But So let me read to you. Okay, Does God accept us just as we are? God loves you just the way you are. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though, perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. And if you're wondering what that means, you know, think, uh, think war movie here. You know, you got the, you got the, uh, the American GIs that are in a firefight with the Nazis and a grenade comes into the foxhole and one of the guys takes his helmet and lays on the grenade and his chest gets blown out and his six buddies are able to live. That's, you know, for, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. That's what you're talking about here. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him 
from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, well, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, no, no, no. God doesn't accept us as we are, because all of us by nature are enemies of God. That's what this text is saying. We are by nature enemies. And while we were enemies, Christ died for our sins. And what were we saved from? The wrath of God. So here you have wrath and grace, wrath and forgiveness. You have enemies who hate God, and Jesus dies for those enemies, and they are saved by faith. Repentance, basically, is super simple to understand if you really want to know what it is. Repentance is is taking a, a stake and driving it through the heart of your righteousness and saying there's nothing worthy inside of me. I know I am a lost and condemned sinner. It's Repentance is driving a stake into your self-righteousness and killing it and saying and confessing what God's word teaches, you have nothing to offer God. You are bankrupt, dead in trespasses and sins, and by nature, you are an enemy of God. You are not a good person. You are a sinner. And that's what this text says. So God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ dies for our sins. Not to accept us the way we are, but to die for and propitiate the wrath of God for the way we are. See the difference? Yeah, Scott here is not preaching the gospel. This is a subtle and seductive, kindly, gracious-sounding gospel he's preaching, but it's a false one. That, that impacts my life as well, and that, 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 that my behavior will reflect that. And the reason for that is this, and I hope we get this, okay, is because we live our lives out of who, out of, the, out of the reality of who we believe God is and how we believe he sees us. I mean, think about that for a second. So apparently we do what we do because of psycholog- psychological factors, not because we are by nature sinners. We live our lives out of the reality of who we believe God is and how we believe he sees us. It impacts everything. I mean, we see this. Simple question, which of the apostles taught this? Where can you find this teaching being taught by Christ or the disciples? Answer, not one of them ever said this. Not Jesus, not the apostles, not the prophets, not Moses. Nope. This all throughout the scriptures. We see it in our lives today even. Um, but if you think about it, okay, let's talk about Adam and Eve real quick. So, you know, Adam and Eve, God puts them in this beautiful garden. He says, hey, ha- have a great time. You, know, you can even be naked. You know, and, 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 and you guys got all nervous when I said naked. Oh, yeah. You, you, know how, you know how in public speaking they say, like, picture the crowd is being naked? And, and you'll... Okay, maybe I shouldn't try it. Okay, anyway. Um, no, was I- 
by the way, if you have your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 3 in preparation for what we've got to clean up here, the mess that he's about to make. As I was saying, oh, Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve in the garden, God says, uh, God says, okay, here's this garden. I, I, I want to bless you and I want you to enjoy it. But, but, but hey, here's the thing. Adam and Eve, listen, don't forget whose it is. All right. Don't forget who it all belongs to. Don't start thinking it's yours. In fact, the way you're going to show me that you, you trust that it's mine and you believe that it's mine is you're not going to eat from that one tree. See that tree over there? Yeah, it looks nice, doesn't it? But that tree, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. Enjoy everything else, but don't eat from that one tree. So what does Adam and Eve do? They eat from the tree. I don't think you're better than them. You would have done the same thing, right? Yeah. God says, don't do it. So what do we do? We do it, right? It'd be better off God commanding us to do it. Then we probably wouldn't do it, right? Anyway. No, but I mean, I mean, think about this. So, so suddenly, suddenly sin comes in the world. Everything changes. And what does God do? Well, God does what is his pattern throughout the scripture. Okay, listen to what he said. Well, sin comes into the world. He doesn't explain it. Well, what's that mean? Apparently, sin means not acknowledging that the world belongs to God. He pursues them. And what does Adam and Eve do? They force Gump it out of there. They run. They take off. You know why they take off? They hide. They hide from God. You know why they hide from God? They hide because of how they believe God perceived them. I mean, think about this for a second, okay? God's going after them to... So listen to what the implications are here. If you believe his retelling of the story, and he's not actually exegeting the text, then sin is pretty much um, believing falsely about what God thinks about us. That's the implication here. Embrace them and to clothe them. And to reconnect with them, they, on the other hand, are running and hiding because they think God is pissed. They think God is angry. Okay, why is that? Well, same reason you and I do it today, because we live out of the reality of who we believe God is and how we believe he sees us. It impacts everything. It impacts our motivation for everything we... So the reason why everything is wrong in the world is because we misperceive how God perceives us. We don't believe what God really thinks about us. We believe falsely about what God thinks about us. Therefore, that's the, that's the root of sin in the world. We do in our spiritual life. It impacts everything from, I mean, I mean think about this. Okay, how hard you work to try and impress God says a lot about how you view God. So some of you, you felt so proud today coming to church because you said, I'm going, I'm going to go to church, which that's good. I'm proud of you for going to church. But, but some of you are like, God's going to be extra proud of me because I went to church today and my wife too. She's going to be proud of me, right? I mean, I mean, how you view God, okay? I mean, how hard you work to try and impress God. There's a lot about what you believe about God and how he sees you. I mean, why you read your Bible, why you pray, how you pray, why you give, how you give, all those things, why you go to church, the attitude you have when you go to church, all point. To what you believe about God and how he sees you. And I'll tell you what, listen, uh, I think one of, the, one of the reasons this is so important and why we're going to spend some time here is because uh, the, the reality is, okay, how I view God directly impacts how I view myself and how I view others. Okay, um, I told you we're going to need to clean some things up here. All right, Genesis chapter 3. Let's take a look at this, okay? Okay. 
Now, if you're tempted to think that um, that that Adam and Eve didn't really sin or they didn't transgress God's law, okay, let me uh, let me give you a verse to consider because God Yahweh Himself makes it very clear that Adam and Eve transgressed His law. In fact, His covenant. Okay, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 states, and go back and read it in context. I, I absolutely think you should do this. He says, but like Adam, they, talking about Israel, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Okay, so Yahweh, the one true God, reveals in Hosea, to Hosea the prophet, that Adam transgressed his covenant. Now, with that in mind, we flip back to Genesis chapter 3. You know what? Uh, no, let's go back just a little bit more. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, and we're going to pretend that this is a crime scene. So we have to look at the entire scene of the crime, if you would. So go back to Ch Genesis chapter 2. We'll start at verse 15 somewhere. Yeah, we'll start at verse 15. Adam and Eve have already been made. That's all what's uh, happened. Well, actually, Adam has already been made, but uh, Eve is coming later. Let me let me pick it up from Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord took the man that he had made and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no, uh, there was not found a helper that was suitable or fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with the flat with flesh, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, "This is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh." She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. By the way, here we've got you know, the, the makings of marriage. Marriage begins with a positive affirmation of what it is, not with a negative. The positive is, is that marriage is the leaving of, of a man, a man leaving his father and mother, and being united with his wife and becoming one flesh with her. That's marriage. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now to the crime scene. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And notice the deconstructing question. She's already off guard at this point. And the woman said to the serpent, well, uh, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, enlightenment, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, well, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 makes it clear. Adam transgressed God's covenant. God commanded him that he could eat of any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve broke that covenant. Adam is responsible. Adam broke the covenant. Okay? So we continue. So they sewed fig leaves on themselves and made loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and, I, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman that you gave, uh, gave to, to be with me, she, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, uh, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, now watch this, what's going on here? Does God just love them the way they are? It, it, I mean, watch what happens. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So God cursed the serpent for deceiving Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, not springs, but spring. He, referring to Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right here in the middle of all of this, well, of God's judgment, okay, God is pronouncing judgment. Court is now in session. Uh, the serpent is cursed, and a promise is given regarding the, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Genesis thirteen three sixteen then continues. So to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. to actually kind of rule over him, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Now, it doesn't end there, but I want to point something out here. 
what does this sound like? There are punishments doled out. There are curses put in play. Curse, a curse on the earth and, and, and a curse against Adam and Eve so that they have to struggle and survive and experience pain and death. Why? Because they disobeyed God. They broke his covenant. They disobeyed his command. And he pronounced judgment on them. But even in the judgment, there was a promise, a glimmer of hope. The the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That promise was fulfilled in Christ on the cross. So does God uh, view humanity as basically good? No. Verse 22. Well, actually, verse 20. Let, let me continue. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. Notice, God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden of Eden so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge, uh, uh, sorry, the tree of life and live forever in a sinful, fallen state. If God loves them the way they are, then why didn't he allow them to eat of the tree of life in the condition they were in? It's because the tree of life at this point changes. That tree of life, had they eaten of it, they would have lived, they would have lived forever in a sinful, fallen state. Ever warring against their sinful flesh. However, there is a tree of life now for us, and that tree of life is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the tree. When we eat of its fruit, think communion, think the Lord's Supper. When we eat of its fruit, we live forever. And we will not live forever as sinners. We will live forever as righteous See the difference that's going on here? If God accepted them the way they are, then why did he curse them? If this is a story about God pursuing them in love and them running away because they had a false impression of God, then why is it that God cursed the ground, cursed the serpent, cursed the woman with pain and childbearing, and pronounced judgments on them, and then showed extreme concern for them that they not eat of the tree of life in this state? Yeah, this emergent theology, that's what this is. This is emergent theology. It's Brian McLaren's teaching and uh, Jonathan Brink's ideas. This is not the biblical gospel. And when you look at the text, the text shows you that what he's teaching isn't true. Because he didn't really teach you the story from the book of Genesis. He paraphrased it, mis emphasized it, and told you things about it that were not true. Because if you just open up the text and read it, you'll realize 
there's a huge difference between what the text says and what Scott Hodge is saying here. Let me think about that for a second. How I view God impacts how I view myself and how I view others. Okay, let me think about this for a second. Um, the person who thinks that God is like this loose cannon and, and, and he's up in, in, in the sky with a lightning bolt device. This is Zeus, not Yahweh. And he's just standing there just waiting for the great opportunity to remind us that he's in charge. So God is standing there. He's just waiting. He's like the Terminator, right? Don't, don't, you, don't you look at me the wrong way. Don't you look at me cross-eyed, okay? Don't, don't even think about it. I will zap you, right? The person who sees God standing there like this will soon become fearful. Will soon become slave-like. Will soon become, well, probably become pretty unbending in their expectations of themselves and other people. See, okay, our view of God, how he perceives us, it really, 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 really matters. And so I think this is a starting point, asking the question, how does God see me? How does God view me? What is his perception of you and me? Now, that's a perfectly fine question to ask. The thing is, is it has to be informed biblically, okay? Um, flip on over to Exodus chapter 20, Okay. This should give you some idea of what God thinks about you. Okay, Exodus chapter 20. Okay, we read, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you transgressed this uh, commandment of God? Have you had other gods besides the one true God? Have you believed falsely about God? Your God is what you fear, love, and trust above everything else. Do not make for yourselves any image or likeness of anything that is heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love and keep my commandments. By the way, what does God describe those who commit the sin of idolatry? He describes them as those who hate him. That's God's words. So if you've committed idolatry, you have basically tacitly confessed your hatred towards God. <clears throat> you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh, the seventh is a Sabbath day to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock. For in six days the Lord God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Now stop for a second. Just because you haven't physically killed somebody doesn't mean you're not guilty of breaking this commandment. Jesus says if you say, Racha, call your brother a fool, you're guilty of murdering him. You shall not commit adultery. Well, stop for a second. Just because you may not have actually committed the physical deed, that doesn't make you clean. Because if you look at another who is not your spouse, 
lustfully, with lustful intentions, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. You shall not steal. That includes paper clips, rubber bands, pens, and things that belong to your employer, paper pads, all that kind of stuff. That's all theft. If it doesn't belong to you and you put it in your bag and take it home, you're stealing. You shall not bear false witness or lie against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his donkey or servant or male servant or his ox or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off. And Moses said, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, otherwise we will die. So here in the Ten Commandments, which still reign, this is the law that accuses us of our sin and shows us our need for a Savior. How do you stand up when we look into the mirror of God's law and God's expectations? You do realize that by nature, when Adam and Eve were made, that they would have perfectly, you know, before they sinned, they loved God, they didn't murder, they didn't steal, they didn't commit adultery, they didn't bear false witness. How they would, if it weren't for the for the fall, humanity would be keeping these things perfectly. In fact, in the new heaven and new earth, there will, we will love God perfectly and we will see him face to face. We will not murder. We will not commit adultery. We will never steal. We will not bear false witness. We will never covet. We will love God and love neighbor perfectly. There will be no sin. There will be no suffering. There will be no death. And we will live for ages and eternity without sin. All of this veil of tears that we live in now will be a distant and painful memory. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, it tells us, you know, so, okay, so how do you think God thinks about you? Because it's very clear. God blesses those who keep his commands, and he curses those who don't keep them. Are you blessed or are you cursed? If you're trying to be blessed by keeping the law, then, well, you've got to keep it perfectly. So how are you holding up? How's that working out for you? You see, none, no one will be declared righteous in the sight of God by keeping the law, Romans 3 says. For by the law become, comes knowledge of our sin. So if you've, in me reviewing the Ten Commandments here, and you realized things between you and God are not so rosy as you may have thought, that's exactly what should have come to mind. Things are not rosy. So let's take a stake and let's drive it through the heart of your self-righteousness and come to grips with reality. You have nothing to offer God. You have sided with God's enemy the devil, and your actions show that you've done many things that demonstrate that you actually hate God. That's the truth. 
That's reality. You should have no self-esteem left at this point. You should have no illusions of self-worth. If God gave you what you deserve, then you can confess correctly, you deserve hell. So do I. But there's another word. All of those sins, all of your rebellion, all of your hatred towards God in every act of unrighteousness that you have ever committed has been propitiated by the blood of Christ on the cross. God demonstrates his love for you in that while you were still a sinner and an enemy of Christ and an enemy of God, Christ died for your sins. You do not have to stand before God in your filth and your muck and your sinfulness and your wretched condition and hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. That's just foolishness. There's no need for it, because Christ died for your sins. So repent. Put a stake in the heart of your self-righteousness. Declare yourself to be unworthy of anything good from God. And be forgiven. And hear the words of the cross, of the gospel. You are declared righteous in Christ. Believe and trust in him. He is the one who washes away your iniquities. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 32. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the biblical gospel. That's the true good news. And having heard that, now we continue with the sermon. Well, to help get us started for a few minutes, I brought something with me that I thought I would share with you. Um, this, um, I have something here that actually belongs to my daughter, Elise. She's 10 and a half years old. And what's in this bag is something that she uh, was given as a gift when she was, when she was born. She's had this for a long time. And I'll tell you what. She loves what's in this bag. She's attached to it. I mean, I mean, I had to pay her a hundred dollars just to bring it here today. Okay. No, and listen, seldom does a day go by when she does not have this in her possession. I'll tell you what, if we go on a vacation or on a trip and she forgets this, woo-woo, it is bad news. Okay. And so, so, so anyway, she loves this. So let me just show you what is, what this precious item is. That's uh, her blankie. Yeah, she got this blanket when she was born. We used to wrap her in this blanket. Now my head fits through it. Yeah. That's her blanket. She loves this thing. But this thing's ugly as sin. I, I mean, seriously, okay, this thing, 
But it's her most favorite possession. How many of your kids have something like this? Yeah. Some of you actually still have something like this. That's, uh, there's counseling for that. This thing looks like it's been through, you know, two world wars. I mean, it is torn and, and it barely held together. It's ripped apart. It's ragged. And it just, frankly, it looks like it needs to be burned. Um, but that's just the, that's just the reality of, of the matter. I mean, that's just the truth of, of the matter. But I'll tell you what, to Elise, mm-mm-mm. Oh, no, no. She sees this very differently. Now, now, is she aware of the rips? Is she aware of the tears? Absolutely, she's aware. I mean, she wakes up in the morning. She's like tangled up in, in a web, you know. Dad, get me out of the web, you know. I mean, I kid you not. I went into her room this morning because I couldn't keep it here. And so she put this note on my mirror, blanket, so I didn't forget. I said, you got to put a, a note. And so I go into her room, and I get the blanket. It took me like 10 minutes to get, to get her untangled from it so I could bring it here. There's probably still pieces of it sitting in her bed somewhere, okay? Um, and so, and so, so anyway, is she aware of, of how messed up this thing is? Absolutely she is. But, but you know what she's aware of even more? Is how much she loves this blanket. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what she believes more and what's more real to her than all these rips and tears is the fact that she loves and she cherishes this blanket and there is nothing in this world that could ever replace it. Never be replaced. Now, here's the deal. That's beautiful. Let me just... Oh, okay. All right, perfect. There, there are two truths about our lives. Two realities about our lives. Okay, on one hand, all of us look like this blanket. Yeah, we, we are ripped and torn we, we, are, we are barely held together. We, we are flawed and we are wounded. We're a mess. Okay, now I want to point something out here. Even though this sounds right, there's something inherently wrong with this definition. We're broken? By broken, do you mean that we have rebelled against God and become his enemies? See, that's one kind of broken. Or there's the psychological broken. <laughs> I just don't, you know, think of the, the loved stuffed animal that because of too much care and is worn out and the button's missing and the nose isn't quite right and its ears are, are it's dirty and it's, lop, it's all lumpy and you know, see, it's broken. The way the Bible describes our relationship with God, we're broken in the sense that we have sided with God's enemy, the devil, and we, by nature, hate God, and we're dead in trespasses and sins. That's the brokenness that the Bible describes. You think of it like uh, on a computer, you know, that's, that's contracted a virus and, and has become a hostile slave uh, to do the bidding of, who, uh, of the malicious code writer. Yeah, it's broken, all right, but it's doing all kinds of damage. Not innocent victim here but active perp. That's the difference. All the way since Adam and Eve decided to do things their way instead of God's way, the mess. And, and of course, we contribute to that, right? Every day of our lives, we contribute to that as well. And so and so, all of us as humans, we are a mess. And here's the thing, not, not, I'm not even just talking like that. That mess doesn't just, you know, stop 
once you become a follower of Christ, you still, you still have a lot of mess in your life, right? Uh, I mean, whether you're a Christ follower or not, you struggle. We, have, we, we struggle with sin. We have insecurities, all kinds of issues in our lives, okay? In fact, I love this quote that I want to share with you. Thomas Merton, he said this, okay? Uh, uh, t- Thomas Merton, a mystic Roman Catholic. There's problems there, folks. That's like Christian Kabbalah. A saint is not someone who is good but someone who experiences the goodness of God. See, here, here's the deal. We got re- So Thomas Merton says, a saint is not somebody who's good, but somebody who, quote, experiences the goodness of God. Can we talk about the cross there? If we're going to talk about the experiencing the, quote, goodness of God, it had better be anchored in the cross, or it's not the real goodness of God. Remember this, that once, uh, once you become a follower of Christ, you... By the way, uh, I, I got to amend what I said. You know, sinners, they experience the goodness of God because God, according to Scripture, sends the rain to water the crops of both the just and the unjust. So there's a common grace that we all receive from God. He cares for our needs on a daily basis. But that's not what's being talked here. If we want to talk about the true goodness of God, as far as our relationship with him is concerned, it must be anchored in the cross. You don't suddenly become exempt to struggles, right? You, you don't suddenly become just like sin-free. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you still are going to, and that, that, we say it this way a lot here at the Orchard, following Jesus is not a destination, okay? It's not, a, it's not like a, 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 you reach some sort of summit at the top of a peak and then you've arrived. No, no, following Jesus is a, what is it? It's a journey, right? And, and it's a journey of becoming more and more like Christ. But, but that's, you, you never arrive in your life. It is a constant journey. And, and uh, we all struggle on that journey. And so here's the deal, okay? On one hand, we're all like this blanket. We are torn. We are flawed. We are broken. We, we are extremely ragged. And, and, and yet, this is not the end of our story. This is not where the story ends. This is not even the ultimate reality of our lives. No, and, and as, as a matter of fact, uh, think of it this way, okay? Just like Elise loves and adores this, this raggedy blanket, just as she loves it, she adores it, she sees it as extremely valuable. Here's the deal. You and I are broken, we are flawed, but God sees you and he loves and he adores and he sees you and me as extremely valuable in even a much greater way. If that value isn't grounded in the cross, for God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for our sins, this isn't the gospel. It's close. But see, that's what makes it so dangerous, is that it's close. Much greater way. And yes, he knows all about your mess. He knows about your mess. Man, he knows about your raggedness. He knows about your issues. He knows about that struggle you, you dealt with last night. He knows, he knows the pain in your life. He understands all of that, all your dysfunctions, all your sins go on down the list. Yet he loves us and, and he values us anyway. No, he doesn't love us anyway. That's not true. He loved us enough to die for all of that and to propitiate God's wrath and justice and to die in our place as our substitute so that we didn't have to pay the consequences of all of that sin and brokenness. There's no cross here. 
God doesn't just love you anyway. This turns God into basically a senile old grandpa who smells of pipe tobacco and butterscotch and who's, you know, doesn't quite have all of his teeth and maybe doesn't even see well, just pats you on the head. And despite the fact that his grandchildren are little brats, he just loves them anyway. He just loves them the way they are. Come here, let Grandpa give you a butterscotch. You're just the cutest little thing. And, and here's the thing. Not only does he love us despite all of that, but here's what's beautiful. Listen, don't miss this. Here's what's so beautiful. God says that all the brokenness and all the terrors and, and all the raggedness, okay, that's not the most important part of our story. It's not the most important part. Because remember, listen, the blanket didn't look like this ten and a half years ago. No, it wasn't created like this. And guess what? Neither was humanity. No, no, no. See, listen, we got to remember when God created man, you know what God did? This is so amazing. God creates this earth and he, he, he speaks everything into existence. Right? Now watch this. This is a misapplication of, of the pronouncement of God. Okay. Yeah. Listen carefully to what he's going to do. He's going to take something that God says of humanity after man is created, that we were very good and gloss over man's fall into sin and other clear passages, like in Genesis 5, where God says that man's thoughts are only evil all of the time from the time of his youth. To where Jesus said, though you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your sons and daughters. How much more? Yeah, see, Jesus says that we're evil. Okay? So he's taking the pronouncement of God from Genesis, where God said, this is very good, and basically trying to apply that to where we are now by glossing over the fall and our fall into sin and our rebellion and death and all of that, and basically say, God still thinks that we're good. Listen carefully. Right? But then when it comes time to create man, what does God do? He changes Changes his whole thing. And, and he says, now I'm going to get down on my hands and knees. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to use my hands. And I'm going to dig in the dirt. And I'm going to form man in my image. And, and he forms man out of the dust of the ground. And he takes man and he goes face to face with man. And he breathes his breath of life into mankind. And suddenly man is so much more than just a bag of bones. God creates us in his image and, and, and he breathes his breath of life into mankind. And, and then, and then he, he, he steps back and he looks at his creation and he says, this is very good. And I believe God is still saying that today. This, did you catch it? God said, this is very good. And God's still saying that today. No, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are rebels by nature, children of the devil. Is it any wonder why? Basically, this is a pronouncement of you being righteous before God without the shed blood of Christ. God, God's declaration of humanity when he created us was that this is, that, you know, they're very good. That that somehow still holds today despite all of our sin and rebellion against God. No, it doesn't. This is a lie. 
is very good. I love the psalmist. He, he declares that we even rival the divine beings in glory and honor. It says a lot about us as humans. In other words, here, here's what I'm saying. Raggedness is not your identity. No, it's not your identity. It's not, it's not your destiny. Okay? R- ragged does not mean worthless. And, 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 you, and, and sure, we may be broken. We may have issues. We may be unlovely. But we are not unloved. You are not unloved. You might be unloved by people around you whose love will constantly fail you. You might feel unloved by your mom or your dad or by your husband or your wife, but God, God sees you and he loves you unconditionally. Yeah, but Scott, okay, you don't understand. I have so much sin. I have so many dysfunctions. Welcome to the club of dysfunction. We love you. We invite you into our community. We are broken people. Our scars are our strength. Yeah, but Scott, you don't understand. Somebody comes to me and says, but you don't understand. I'm, I'm a sinner. Right. Christ died for those sins. What's missing here? The cross. This is, you're good, and there's no need for a cross. Because the cross is missing in this sermon. If you really knew, well... Let's open up the Bible. Romans chapter 5. I'm, I'm going to read from the message. Now, here's the irony. He's going to read from the message paraphrase. He's in Romans chapter 5, and I just got done reading the opening verses to Romans 5, which talk about Christ dying for our sins, even while we were still enemies of God. He's not going to touch those verses with a 10-foot pole. Watch what he does. Message paraphrase. Listen, don't miss this. Romans 5 verse 20. Yeah, notice he skips the verses that I read that talk about that one might die for a good person, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for our sins. That's in the same chapter he's quoting from, but he's we got we got to skip over all of that because that would mess up his emergent theology at this point. And he starts in verse 20 using the message. But sin didn't. And doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. Now listen to this line. I love this. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. Huh? What do we need grace for? Why do we need God's unmerited favor? Grace doesn't make sense in a God just loves you anyway kind of way. That's not grace. That's turning a blind eye towards sin. Turning a blind eye towards sin and not dealing with sin appropriately, that's not grace. God wouldn't be gracious if he just said, oh, I just love you anyway. Don't worry about all that silly sin. I know I said that there's consequences to sin, but I didn't really mean it. That's not grace. If your definition of grace is that God loves you anyway, you don't then... You've basically turned God into an evil and capricious deity who doesn't appropriately handle sin and suffering. That'll tweet. 
When it's sin versus grace. Now, now other translations say it this way. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Okay? In other words, in other words, you got lots of sin. You got, you got, lots, of, you got lots of brokenness. You got lots of wear and tear. Okay, how much? This much? This much? This much? However much? Guess what? There's even more grace. Based on what? Grace is greater than your sin. And can I tell you why we got to talk about this? Here's why. Because there's some of you, you are so uncomfortable right now that we're talking about grace. And right now in your mind, you're just going, yeah, but Scott, we got to be careful with the grace thing. No, you need to hear this. No, you need to be accurate about grace. Grace is not God loves you anyway. Grace is Christ died on the cross for your sins and took your punishment upon himself so that you can be let free. See, we allow, you know what we allow? We allow the, yeah, but Scott, yeah, but, but, but we allow our butts to get in the way of grace. Some of us, we got big butts and so they really get in the way. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins, hands down. You know what that means? You know what that means? That means that when God holds up his mirror to your life, on one hand, sure, you're going to see your need of grace. You're going to see your flaws. You're going to see that you're torn. You're going to see just how badly in need of God's grace you really are. But guess what? You're also going to see something much greater than all the flaws and all the sin. You're going to see the ultimate truth of your life, and that is the truth of grace. That is the truth of unconditional love. That is the truth of... Grace is not unconditional love. Scripture makes it clear that God's love for us is conditioned upon Christ's death on the cross. That's a condition. That's not unconditional. Acceptance. Listen, the truth of acceptance, that God accepts you just as you are, not as you should be. You believe that? Not the way you're preaching it because there's no cross here. This is, again... This sounds gracious. This sounds loving. This sounds kind. This is deceptive. This is a false gospel. It's a gospel without blood. I don't think we do. I don't think we believe it how God wants us to believe it because because our lives would change, right? I I know for me, I wouldn't be so concerned about what people think of me. I, I I wouldn't search out affirmation like I tend to search it out. Notice his sins now fall into psychologizing. See, the other, what, what, his brokenness is based upon his bad self-esteem. He just needs to have the God esteem. If I really believed that God accepts me just as I am, not as I should be. And so we've, we've got a journey that we, we need to take. We've got to let God do something in us. I want to tell you a story um, found in John chapter 8. There's a, there's a story of... Uh, okay, now I need to warn you. He's going to tell the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. We've got a big problem here. It's a fine story. It might even be historically accurate. The problem is, is that the story itself doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts of the text. It has a deep, long-running tradition within Christianity... And many, it, it, many people, for that reason, are hesitant to take it out of the Scriptures for fear of reprisal. But the reality is, is that 
we have to ha- we've got to appropriately handle this fragmented story and that is is that it may not be historical so you can't really draw hard theological facts from it although it seems consistent with Christ and the kicker at the end is go and sin no more Scott's going to quote that in his retelling of the story, but he never explains it. It, it, What's really weird is is, as I listen to many of these guys who mishandle God's word and are completely oblivious to the biblical gospel, they'll read a text and the words will be on their lips. They'll say the things that are written in the text and it, 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 it never even shows up as a blip on their radar map. There it was, and he'll say it, but it never registers. It's like, well, it's like a dead person reading the text. And there's this moment where Jesus is standing outside of this temple. And, and uh, this crowd of people begins to gather around Jesus. And so he begins to, uh, he begins to preach and, and to teach to this crowd. Well, uh, as this is happening, he gets interrupted by a group of religious teachers, Pharisees, who interrupt him. And the reason they interrupt him is because they're bringing him, they're bringing a woman in front of him who has just been caught in the act of adultery. And, and, and according to the law of Moses, if you get caught in the act of adultery, your punishment is you should get stoned. Not, I mean, I just had to clarify that. Some of you are like, well, that's not so bad. <laughs> no, that's bad. But I had to clarify that because some of you, maybe some of you are, are still get stoned, but some of you, you're, that's just where your mind went right away. And you're like, that's, that's crazy. Were they doing that back then? No, I'm not talking about that, okay? So anyway, dear Lord, I'm completely off track now. Let me look at my notes. Okay, so they bring the lady because she's been, she committed adultery, and they put her in front of Jesus, and this is what happens. John chapter 8, verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Verse 6. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. We don't really know what he was writing. That's just one of those things they put in to make us wonder for the rest of our lives, okay? But but I think Jesus was was seeing a great opportunity here. Because look at verse 7. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again. And this is what he says. Listen, he goes, all right. Okay, go ahead, stoner. Go ahead. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again, and he wrote in the dust. All right. You're right. It says that. It says in the law of Moses, stoner, you want to stoner? Go ahead, stoner. Uh, in fact, uh, let, let the person who has no sin be the first one to throw their stone. Okay? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Now, now I've got to be honest. I used to read this, and I used to think to myself, these people are horrible. 
What's wrong with them? I, I mean, come on, what, did they think they were perfect? Did they, did they really think they, they, had, they had no sin? I mean, what brought them to this place? But you know what? This past week, as I'm reading this, it hits me. It hits me. And, and, and you know, here's what, I, here's what I came to realize. I, I, this is my opinion, okay? I don't think they necessarily thought they were perfect. I, I don't necessarily think they thought that they had never sinned in their lives or anything like that. I, I just think they probably did what we tend to do every time we forget just how flawed and broken we are. They, they picked up a stone. Picked up a stone. I, I do it. I do it all the time. I do. And that sucks to have to say that, but I do it all the time. You know what? Listen, every time, every time I, I find myself looking down on someone and thinking that I'm better than them, every time that I'm quick to judge someone, or I hear about someone who, who's done something and, and, and my, my judgmental mind begins to work, or, or every time that, that I believe something other than the best of someone, let me tell you something. In those moments, if I'm really honest about it, if I were to look down in my, in, in, in my, in my hands at that moment, you know what I'd find? I'd find, I'd find one, maybe two stones clenched in my, in my fists. Not, not because I think I'm perfect. Not because I think I'm sin-free. I know, I, I know that, but, but you know what? It, it's, it's just, here, here's the problem, it, is, is that that's just what happens when we forget how broken and flawed we really are. We reach down and we, and we pick up stones and we become judgmental and we become quick to point fingers and we, and we become quick to, to want to point out other people's wrongdoing when we forget our own flaws. And, and, so, and, so, and so when he said, let the, let, let the person who has no sin cast the, fern, uh, cast the uh, first stone, you know, you know what Jesus was doing right there? You know what he was doing? He was holding up a mirror. Hey, look. Look, look. Look at the reality of your life. Take a look. And, and, and then look at verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Isn't that interesting? Why, why begin, you know why that's probably the case is because the oldest people had the most amount of sin in their lives, Right? As they're like, oh, mom's calling, pager's going off. I gotta pull the chariot around. Gotta take off. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now listen, so now it's just Jesus and the woman, right? Okay, let's know what happens. Verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again, and he said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And what Jesus does next is so beautiful, and it is so, so reflective of the Father's heart. He takes that same mirror and now he holds it up to that woman he holds it up to that woman and he shows her the truth the reality of her life except what she sees in the mirror is different than what they see in the mirror the stoners it's different than what they see in the mirror because here's the deal she knew her condition 
Man, she knew, she knew that she was broken. She knew how ragged and torn she was. She was reminded, she had been humiliated. She'd been pulled in front of this crowd. She knew, and she knew, she knew that she deserved whatever she had coming to her. And, and so Jesus takes this mirror and he says, did anybody condemn you? She says, no, Lord. He takes that mirror and he gets, I just imagine like, you know, he gets close to her and he says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Okay, I'm going to stop here. Now notice the way he's telling the story. Uh, the way he's telling the story, this is crossless forgiveness. But Jesus, throughout the Gospels, you hear of Jesus saying that he forgives people. You think of the paralytic who was lowered through Jesus' roof. That was Jesus' house there in, uh, in Capernaum. And, uh, and you know, he's the, there's a whole bunch of people at his house gathered to hear te- Jesus teach. And uh, they, they dig a hole through his roof and lower this paralytic down. And Jesus, first thing he says to the guy is, your sins are forgiven. And in their thoughts, the uh, Jewish religious leaders are going, why is this guy blaspheming? Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus, able to read minds, that's right, he read their thoughts, said, why do these evil thoughts arise in your minds? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise and take your mat and walk, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up and went home. Over and again throughout the Gospels, we hear of Jesus forgiving sinners. So even though the text doesn't say that your sins are forgiven, you have to interpret this potentially spurious story through the cross and the forgiveness of sins. This is Christ absolving her of her sin the same way he absolved others of their sins. And that forgiveness is not just, I love you anyway. That forgiveness is based upon the fact that Jesus is heading to the cross and his cross covers the sins of the whole world, covers the sins of Adam and Eve all the way to the last human being who was born who draws his last breath on the last day. So Jesus' forgiveness is always anchored in his own propitiatory sacrifice. And then he says, go and sin no more. Taking, If we take this, the story as being historical, then this isn't Jesus being a grandfather saying, I love you anyway. Go and sin no more is, is basically an admission, hey, I know you're a sinner. I forgive you. I don't condemn you. Your sins are forgiven. Repent. Notice what's going on there. But Scott's telling the story as, well, as an example of God loves you anyway. And no, you can't isolate stories like this and do this. It has to be run through the entire story of the scriptures and through the pinnacle point of the scriptures, and that's Jesus' vicarious and penal substitutionary death on the cross 
for our sins. It's in that moment that she sees the reality of her life. You know what I think Jesus was saying? Uh, there, there was no, the text doesn't say anything about her seeing the reality of her life. Saying to, to this, this broken, scarred, sin-filled, shamed woman. You, you, know, you know what I think Jesus was saying to her when, when, when he challenged those, those people who were holding the stones? When he challenged them? At, or, or when he knelt down and, and he looked at her with love and forgiveness in, in his eyes? You, you, know what I, you know what I think it was he was saying to her? In, in essence, it wasn't just saying, I love you. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I am for you. I'm for you. I, I'm in your corner. I'm with you. I'm for you. How about I'm going to Calvary to the cross for your sins, for the adultery you were just caught doing? Do you believe God is for you? Do you, do you believe that, that, that he loves you? And, and, and I can just imagine Jesus saying, yeah, I know you've sinned. I know you're broken. I know you're ragged. But I know something greater. I know something that is more true than this right here. You, even like this, are of great value to me. You're of great value, and I accept you, and I love you just as you are, not as you should be. Now go, go, and sin no more. Listen, never confuse the perception you have of yourself. No matter how accurate or wrong it may be, okay? Never confuse the perception you have of yourself with the mystery that you really are accepted. Never confuse the perception that you have of yourself. That maybe you've gained through your life and maybe you, the perception you have is the result uh, of, I don't know, religion, maybe, or family, or maybe the lack of family, or the lack of father, or the lack of a parent, or whatever it might be, and whatever you might have taken on in your life. And, and do not confuse the perception you have of yourself with the mystery that you really are accepted. Um, without the cross? Hello? You think I could stand before God in my own righteousness? And I, I thought you'd just accept me the way that I am, Lord. God is for you. God is for you. See, here's the beauty of it all. When you can finally begin to accept God's acceptance of you. Think about that, okay? When you can finally begin to accept... So, this is a new kind of decision theology. When you can accept God's acceptance for you, that he accepts you just the way you are, like a senile old grandpa who smells of pipe tobacco and butterscotch, well then, you can finally have a good self-image. Accept God's acceptance of you, then you can begin accepting yourself. And then you can stop all that hard work and all that effort of, of, of applying all that, all the spiritual cosmetics so, so that you... So uh, again, notice what this is a remedy for, legalism. So once you can accept God's acceptance of you, then you can accept who you are and you can stop striving to please God uh, through the law. <laughs> this is an alternate telling of salvation by grace, supposedly. The problem is, is that this is not the biblical 
story. This is not true, sound biblical doctrine regarding salvation by grace. Again, I understand uh, Scott's uh, problem. He grew up in legalistic American evangelicalism. And as surely as legalism, you know, night follows day, uh, liberalism follows legalism. And that's what he's bought into. He's bought into emergent liberalism. It's a false gospel. It's a kinder and gentler form of Christianity than uh, legalistic evangelicalism. Uh, The problem is, is that this isn't the gospel. This is not what the scriptures teach regarding grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's not God accepts you anyway. This is a false gospel, and it's really sad to listen to. You can somehow make yourself more presentable to God. You can stop. And you can stop with this, with this preoccupation of trying to look good to God, trying to look good to everybody else. And then you don't have to be afraid of failure anymore. You don't have to be afraid of, of, of criticism in your life. And you don't have to go around trying to make everybody happy and trying to please everyone around you. And you can finally start living the kind of life that God created you to live. And you can start being the kind of person that God created you to be. And so over these next few weeks, would you allow God to paint a fresh, new, transforming picture of who he is? Would you please allow God to paint a new, fresh picture? I had no idea God was a painter. I just did not know that. And how he sees you. Would you let God paint a new picture in your heart? There's some of you you've been following Christ for years, and you're still not totally convinced that God loves you. Yeah, but how do you know? Yeah, that's because they they don't hear about the cross. Scott, because because I see that you're trying too hard. You're, you're making your relationship with God more about you than it is about Him. And you're making it more about your goodness than it is about His goodness. And so I invite you to take this journey over these next few weeks. And I believe, and because here's the challenge, okay? You, you can't just make yourself trust God. You can't make that. You can't just make yourself. You can't will yourself to trust that God loves you. It's something you have to experience. And there's going to be some of you in the days ahead, you're going to experience it. You have to experience it. Really, Where does the Bible say that we have to, quote, experience it? It doesn't. What is with all this experience stuff? It needs to be proclaimed and preached to you, and it needs to be believed. And so would you let God paint a fresh picture in your heart? Would you, would you let God paint a transforming picture in your heart of who he is and how he sees you? And, and then, then here, here's the other thing. Would you allow him to give you the courage to, to look into that mirror for your identity? Would you allow him to give you the courage to look in his mirror, that mirror, and push all the other mirrors aside? And, and would, you, would you allow him to, to move in your heart as you consider then what that means about who you are? what that means about your identity. If you're willing to do that, I'm going to invite you to take a moment, even right now, to just, to just whisper a prayer to God between you and him. 
And I know that, that in moments like this, and, and when you've got a crowd like this gathered together, we, we are all at different places in our spiritual journey. There's some of you, 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 you don't even know what you think about God or Jesus, and, and you're just, you're not even sure. I mean, you're so blown away that you're even sitting in church right now. Uh, don't worry, they're not. It's not really, they're not really sitting in a church because you're not preaching the gospel, and you're not really teaching God's word correctly either. And there's others of you, you've been, you, maybe you've been walking with God for a long time, but wherever you're at, would, what if we all could just take a moment right now, just in your own way, between you and him, and just whisper a prayer to God. Would you bow your heads with me? Done. Tragedy. Absolutely tragedy. Crossless, Christless acceptance by God. This turns God into a demon, by the way. Seriously. If God did not properly and justly deal with our sin, then he's, he's just a capricious demon. This is not the gospel. It sounds so loving and kinder. It's a kinder and gentler form of, quote, Christianity than legalism. But it's every bit as damning as legalism is. This is a false pipe dream of God loves you and accepts you anyways, and there's no cross. Without the cross, God does not accept you. Without faith and repentance, God does not accept you. It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa. It doesn't matter if your good works are better than all the other six billion people on this planet. You are still dead in trespasses and sins, and God doesn't accept you. You are only acceptable to God through the work of Christ. And anyone who would tell you otherwise is lying to you and preaching to you a false gospel and giving you false comfort and making basically putting you at ease, making you falsely believe that everything's okay between you and God when it isn't. This is just sad and absolutely tragic. This is what happens when a pastor comes under the influence of emergent thought. And Scott Hodges, well, he's well known among the seeker-driven pastors, well-liked and well-respected and invited to speak at their conferences. And yet he shouldn't be allowed because he's not bringing us the biblical sound gospel of Jesus Christ, focusing on Christ and him crucified for our sins, pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. This is so sad. We pray for his repentance and to be forgiven of this false gospel. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions. If you don't already uh, support us financially, we need your help. Uh, you can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You can click on one of the buttons there. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. The Join Our Crew button, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I would love to get your feedback on this one. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.